You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So what kind of Christian are you? That's the question that many of us have probably been asked at some point in our lives. I remember uh, back in the early days when we were just uh, getting started as a church, it seemed like I got asked that question all the time. I'd be talking with a neighbor or someone um, about uh, this church that we're planting, and naturally they'd want to know, well, what kind of church is it? What, what kind of Christian are you? It's a good, it's a good question. It's obvious, I think, to most people that there are lots of people and lots of churches that call themselves Christians, and yet they're all different. And sometimes those differences are major, and sometimes those differences are minor, but there's still differences. And so people want to know, where do you fall? I think when we're talking to people, especially unfamiliar with Christianity, we should be able to help them out with that question. Where are we, where is our church when it comes to the map of Christianity? Well, the goal of this sermon is to answer that question. And that's because our passage today, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 to 13, which is mainly Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, this passage and and how you understand this passage is a dividing line of minor theological differences among Christians. And I I think you're going to see what I mean when I get there, but before we do that, what I'd like to do to start is I want to back way up and I want to talk about major theological differences among those who claim the name of Christ. Maybe you've wondered this before. What are the broadest possible differences among those who claim to be Christians? All right, so what I want you to do is is imagine if you can um, that there's a big funnel, okay? This is, it goes like this. Funnel, that kind of goes like this, all right? So we're going to start way out here with the broadest possible difference. Has everyone got that image of a funnel? That's kind of how we're working. First, before we do that, let me pray and ask for God's help. Um, Father in heaven, we again in this moment want to thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is truth. Father, we ask that this morning and always by your Holy Spirit, guide us in your truth for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so back to that funnel, way out here, okay. The broadest possible differences among those who claim to be Christians. The broadest differences way up here, it has to do with how you order three sources of authority. All right, everyone who claims to be a Christian recognizes the authority of at least three things. Number one is the Bible. Number two is church tradition. Number three is human reasoning. Those three things, those three sources of authority are common across the board. The major differences emerge, though, when it comes to which one of those three authorities is the top authority, which is the first and top authority. Whichever that is, it creates three basic categories, okay? Here's the first category. Of those three sources, if church tradition is the top authority, 
it means that you don't deny the authority of Scripture. You don't deny the authority of human reason. But they're both subjected to church tradition. Church tradition is the final buckstopper, which means that your highest appeal when it comes to matters of faith and practice is going to be the church itself expressed through its councils and histories. This is the way it goes with churches like the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church. The second category are those who claim to be Christians but put human, human reasoning as the top authority. Now they recognize that the Bible and church tradition have value, but ultimately, in this category, the most decisive factor when it comes to faith and practice has to do with human reasoning. The, the real question here is what makes most sense to the way the world thinks? That's the main authority. And the big problem with this category is that the way the world thinks is also called the spirit of the age. This category ends up trying to accommodate or syncretize Christian truth with popular cultural views. And this is the way it goes with uh, liberal or progressive churches. This Syncretism project isn't new. It really started back, I think, in the 18th century with the Enlightenment and then through um, the 1800s with the Darwin's evolutionary theory. And today, uh, this is mostly seen in views about anthropology and sexuality, which there's some ironies there in terms of its history. But for example, today, today, there are whole denominations and churches who claim to be Christian but think that it's okay or at least they don't oppose the killing of preborn babies or the mutilation of children. They're basically just like the Democratic Party. Now, how'd that happen? How did that happen in a church? Well, it's because they put human reasoning, which is influenced by the spirit of the age, they put human reasoning above the Bible as the source of authority. That's the second category. The third category are those Christians who say that the Bible is the top and final Authority. Now, they appreciate church tradition. They value human reasoning. But both church tradition and human reasoning are subjected to whatever the Bible says. If church tradition or human reason claims something that contradicts the Bible, the Bible wins. The Bible wins. And... Sometimes that leads to Reformation, which is exactly what happened in the 16th century. There was the sale of indulgences, and there was the false teaching of purgatory, among other things. And Martin Luther was like, wait a minute, where's that at in the Bible? 
That's not what the Bible says. Everything has to come back to this book. What does the book say? This category largely is considered to be evangelical Protestant or reformational. And what distinguishes this category of Christian from the other categories is that they believe the Bible is the final authority for faith and practice. And if somebody were to ask you what kind of church we are, I think a fine answer would be to say that we're this kind. We are a Bible-believing church. We're Bible-believing Christians. That's a good phrase. I hope you like that phrase. It's a good phrase. It's a good way of saying it. We believe the Bible. We're a Bible-believing church, a Bible-believing Christians. But now get this, okay? This is where it gets interesting. Under this category of evangelical Protestant or under this category of Bible-believing Christian, we're back, back here in the funnel. Okay, we've come down to about right here. When you get here under evangelical Protestant, Bible-believing, all of a sudden it does this. You get it? Spreads out. There are, under this, in this category, there are lots of minor differences. It reminds me of an arcade game. I don't know the name of this thing. Maybe you've seen it before. If you get into an arcade, you know the thing? You put like a ball in the top, and the ball like kind of bounces around in a maze. I don't know the name of that, but it's like a maze sort of thing. It's kind of like that, okay? So we've done the funnel up here. We kind of come down here, and now the ball is going, okay? So I'm going to try to clarify that. All right, in the, in the sermon, okay? Where is our church at when it comes to right there, okay? You got it. Well, here's the deal. If you want to know in detail where we're at, you can go read our Elder Affirmation of Faith, suppose it out. But it's important to understand that at this point, the disagreements within this category of evangelical Protestant are good faith disagreements about what the about what the Bible says about secondary issues. Everyone in this category, if you're in this category, you say the Bible is the final authority. It's just that some claim the Bible says this, and others say, no, 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 the Bible says that. That's, that's the differences, and they're minor differences. Here's, here's what's interesting about our passage. Jeremiah 31, which is here in Hebrews 8, the new covenant is the case in point. This passage today in Hebrews 8 is the dividing line among those minor differences. What I'd like to do is I'd like to show you what we believe the Bible says. All right? So we're, we're getting down here in the funnel. Okay? Everybody ready for this? We're going to do it. Here we go. Just for a little bit, just catching up on context, look at Hebrews 8. Look at verse 6. Now, I want to just review the last couple of weeks. Remember that the writer of Hebrews has labored in chapter 7 to show us that Jesus is our great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And that makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Because Jesus is our high priest, we have a better salvation. And, and the writer repeats this again. He repeats this point in chapter 8, verse 6. Everybody, look at the words here. I want you to see this. Look at the words here in verse 6. Hebrews 8, verse 6. But as it is, 
Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is, say it, better. Since it is enacted on, say it, better promises. So, so Jesus mediates a better covenant because it's enacted on better promises. Now, don't you think the writer should tell us what those better promises are? We would expect this as readers, right? What are these better promises? Well, look, let's keep reading verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and, and then the writer's going to go on, and he's going to give this long quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. It's the part of Jeremiah that describes the new covenant. It's the, the second covenant he talks about in verse 7, also called the new covenant. Here's the logic and what he's doing. The new covenant is enacted on better promises, and what makes these promises better is how they're contrasted with the old covenant faults. The faults of the old covenant occasioned the need for a new covenant established on better promises. That's verse 7. So then what are the faults of the old covenant that the new covenant solves? That's exactly what the writer starts to tell us in verse 8 when he quotes Jeremiah 31. It's really interesting though. The writer doesn't say... Here are the problems with the old covenant. He doesn't do that. Instead, he just states the new covenant. He gives you, this is the longest Old Testament quote in the New Testament. And there's basically no commentary here. Like there's no milk and sugar. This is just straight black coffee, full quote. Here you go. That's what it is. And this is amazing because... It's saying something. It's implying something. It implies that it should be obvious to us as readers how the new covenant is better. It should be obvious to us how the old covenant faults are now answered by new covenant promises. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 can stand on its own and tell us what's wrong with the old covenant and what's better about the new. And there are three things quickly I want to highlight here. These are three new covenant realities that make it better than the old covenant. Number one is this. The new covenant targets the old covenant problem of unbelief and unfaithfulness. This is, this is super clear. This is the, the first point here is really an overarching difference between the new covenant and the old covenant. The main fault, the big problem of the old covenant was that the, the Israel was covenantally unfaithful. They didn't believe. God's covenant partners didn't believe. That's precisely what the new covenant addresses. Look at verse 8. This is Jeremiah 31, 31 and 32. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will establish, important words here, a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers, On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So we know here it's the new covenant. It's the new covenant because it's not like the old covenant. Well, how is it not like the old covenant? What's wrong with the old covenant? Verse 9. For they, Israel, did not continue in my covenant. 
And so I show no concern for them, declares Yahweh. The problem with the old covenant was that God made the covenant with the people who were unfaithful. God's covenant partners did not keep the covenant. They broke the covenant. And they broke it right away. In this story of Exodus, you'll remember, it had only been a few months after God had rescued them from Egypt through amazing signs and wonders. It had only been 40 days after they received the law at Sinai. What'd they do? They started worshiping a golden calf. So quickly, after what God had done, after God's power had been on display, right away, Israel shows themselves to be a faithless people. And this is important because it means that we can't simply think of the old covenant as old, but also as broken. Now we know that the covenant didn't end there in the book of Exodus. It, it continued, the old covenant continued throughout the Old Testament. But it was broken from the start. And it continued on in the Old Testament with faults. Faults. For your imagination, imagine this. Imagine a car that gets wrecked, okay? Or because we're in the Twin Cities, imagine a car that's been stolen, okay? Uh, maybe easier for us. Um, and it gets, it gets beaten up pretty bad, okay? Like it gets banged around a little bit, and, and the car, you get it back, and it's got like a couple spare tires, um, it smells terrible on, on the inside. Um, it uh, has one headlight. Um, the back windshield has been busted out, so it has one of those things with like duct tape and a, and a, a plastic, like a trash bag over it. You guys remember? That's the, and it still runs, but it's got faults, right? It's got problems. That's, that's basically the old covenant right away. Right away. It's broken. That fact is really the foremost reality of Israel's story as we come to the New Testament. It was super clear. This was super clear to the Old Testament prophets. Remember that these prophets carried out their prophetic ministry as they sat in the anticipation of and the ruins of God's judgment on Israel. That's where Jeremiah was when he prophesied these words. Jeremiah knew when he prophesied the new covenant, he knew that the Babylonians were coming. And they were coming as God's judgment on Israel for Israel's covenant unfaithfulness. And so God gives Jeremiah a vision beyond that judgment to a future day when God would solve the primary problem. See, in one way, really, the Old Testament anticipates, the whole Old Testament anticipates this. If there's one thing that's obvious to us in the Old Testament, it's that humans are a mess. That's true of humans in general. It's especially true, we see, of the people of Israel. I think we've seen this so clearly as we've, as we've preached through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. We've seen that Israel is a stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. And it's interesting because that phrase for being hard-hearted or stubbornness of heart, it's used eight times in the book of Jeremiah. In chapter 17 of Jeremiah, there's that famous verse that I'm sure many of you have heard before. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. You guys heard that verse before? That's the condition 
of the fallen sinful heart. And there's no doubt when we're reading the Old Testament that that's the issue. The issue is the heart. The problem behind the problem of covenant breaking is this hardness of heart. And that's exactly what the new covenant addresses. The main fault, the main problem with the old covenant is that it's made with covenant breakers who have hard hearts. And that's what God must do something about. That's what the better promises are going after. And verses 10 to 12 here give us those details. Here's the second point. The details of how it's a better covenant enacted on better promises. Number two, all members of the new covenant have the instruction, the law of Yahweh written on their hearts. Okay, so this new covenant is not like the old one. Here it is. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my laws, Torah. I will put my instruction, he says, into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And there are two things that we see here that are similar. We've heard before when it comes to the old covenant. First here, we've heard this sentence before, I will be their God and they shall be my people. God repeats that statement all throughout the Old Testament. It's a statement about God's covenant relationship to his people. Second, we know that God has a law. We know that God has instruction. That's not new to us. As an expression of God's love for his people, he has told his people how he wants them to live as their expression of their love for him and others. God has revealed his righteousness to us in this way. The ideas here of covenant relationship and law, they're similar to the old covenant, except that now, look at this, the law or the instruction of Yahweh is not merely a thing externally that we conform ourselves to, but God's instruction goes deeper. God has put his instruction in our minds. God has written his instruction on our hearts. And that changes everything. Like this is it. This changes everything. God's law. The instruction of God is internalized. It's on our hearts. And now this isn't mentioned here in the book of Jeremiah, but when God repeats the new covenant through the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel explains more of this promise. Ezekiel 36, verse 26, God says, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you, to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That is what God is doing when he writes his instruction on our hearts. He's he's actually giving us new hearts. He's actually putting his spirit within us. And get this, he is causing us to be faithful. He's causing us to believe. Now, is that a better promise or what? It it means this. The spirit-empowered writing of God's instruction on our new hearts 
makes every member of the new covenant endure in faith. See, it's not like the old covenant. There's a transformation of the heart for every new covenant member. And then this transformation, God's instruction on our new heart, it deepens our covenant relationship with God. If you're a member of the new covenant, God is our God and we are his people. Or now we could say, God is my father and I am his son. Lord, I am his daughter. In fact, we cry out to him, Abba, Father. That's a new covenant wonder. Calling God our Father, being his sons and daughters, that is the application of the new covenant that the Apostle Paul makes explicit in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. There is now an intimacy, a closeness with God as our Father that every member of the new covenant experiences. Look at verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. This is saying exactly what it sounds like it's saying. Every member of the new covenant knows God. In the new covenant, you don't have to teach or compel one another to know God because everyone already does. And this reality of the new covenant quoted here in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 11 is actually verse 34 of Jeremiah 31. And it's contrasted to an earlier verse that we see in that same chapter in Jeremiah. Right, right before Jeremiah announces the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. In verse 29 he says, In those days... They shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. So in the old covenant, you became part of the covenant by physical birth. You became a member of that covenant community by simply physically being born into it. And one thing that meant was that the children had to bear the judgment of their father's sins. The structure of the old covenant was physically, genealogically defined. Which also meant that although you might be born into the covenant and part of that covenant community, you might not trust Yahweh. You, you might not believe. And that was certainly the case for most of Israel's history. Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. But very, very few of them shared the faith of Abraham. That's, that's the point here. There were lots of covenant members. There are very few covenant keepers. And so that meant that some members of the covenant, the covenant keepers, had to urge the other members of the covenant to know God, to believe, to, 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 to keep the covenant, be a covenant keeper. Which meant this. It meant, this is how they sung the song, okay? They would say, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you, at least physically. But you have to believe. 
That's how the song goes in the Old Covenant. That's how it goes in the Old Testament. And this is one of the ways that the New Covenant is fundamentally different. It does not have a physical genealogical structure. It doesn't matter what kind of grapes your mama and daddy eat. You are not simply part of the new covenant because you are physically born, but you become part of the new covenant only when you are spiritually born. What the Bible calls new birth. That's when God does this heart work that he promises here. To be a member of the new covenant means that that you have been born again. It means you've experienced the new birth, which is why we don't have to say to each other, no, God. To be a member of the new covenant means that you do know God. The new covenant community is not a mixture of believers and unbelievers like in the old covenant. But in the new covenant... All covenant members are believers, and only believers are covenant members. See how it's a new and better covenant? Third thing, final thing. The new covenant declares the entire forgiveness of all our sins. It it declares the entire forgiveness of all the sins of every new covenant member. This is verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Notice the four there in verse 12. This declaration of God's mercy to the members of the new covenant is what grounds this covenant relationship. If you've ever wondered, what is the foundation for this new covenant? Like, where does this new covenant come from? It comes from the mercy of God displayed in his forgiveness of the sins of his covenant partners. And this forgiveness of sins is not a new thing. We know forgiveness happened in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, through the sacrificial system. The forgiveness of people's sins we saw in Leviticus, it was repeated every year on the Day of Atonement. But the reason that it was repeated every year was because it was always insufficient. God forgave the sin of his people, but he didn't forget about the sin. You had to turn around and do it all over again the next year, and the next year, and the next year. That's what makes the sentence here in verse 12 astounding. God says, I will remember their sins no more. God says that about every member of the new covenant. It means, church... It means that when you enter into the new covenant by repentance and faith in Jesus because of the new birth, there is nothing left to be done about the penalty of your sin. There is no more action that needs to be taken for your guilt ever. In the new covenant, Being part of this covenant means that we have the full and entire forgiveness of all our sins. How? Well, it's because Jesus says, it is the new covenant in my blood. Not the blood of bulls, not the blood of goats, the blood of Jesus himself. The blood of Jesus atones for our sins by his once for all sacrifice 
at the cross. Look, church, when Jesus died on the cross, he died for you, for you. He was slain. His blood shed for you as a perfect sacrifice. And then as our great high priest, he poured out his blood, as it were, for you one time, once for all. And then he sat down. It's finished. That's important in the book of Hebrews. He's seated as the great high priest. His work is done. Forgiveness has been accomplished. Atonement has been made. The debt has been paid. Your sins, church, your sins are remembered no more. So the the greatest tension then, the greatest fault of the old covenant is overcome by Jesus. And here's what we do. We rest in this. We, We enter this rest, see. We rest in the full and entire forgiveness of all our sins. We rest in the reality of new hearts that God has given us by His Spirit. We rest in this new, deepened relationship that God is our Father and that we are His sons and daughters and that we know Him. We rest here. We rest here. Which means that in the new covenant, we don't anticipate that God will do these things in the future. But we declare and enjoy and rest in the fact that God has already done them in Jesus and we experience them right now. I got the Holy Spirit right now. Right now. To be a member of the new covenant It means that we are all, Joel chapter 2, the book of Acts chapter 2. To be a member of the new covenant means that we all have the Holy Spirit. We've all been filled by the Holy Spirit. We are all sons and daughters of God now, and we are forgiven now forever. And you are either part of that covenant, either that's true of you, or that's not true of you. And if you're part of the new covenant, because of your faith in Jesus, because of the new birth, that's true of you. That's true of you. So what kind of Christians are we? That's the question. What kind of Christians are we? We're the kind who, as best as we can, submits ourselves to the word of God as our top authority. And we believe that this is why the new covenant is a better covenant. And we believe that this better covenant is what baptism declares. In just a few moments, we're going to have seven individuals coming to be baptized today. And they're being baptized as a, a visible demonstration of their faith union with Jesus. They're showing, they belong, because of their faith in Jesus, they belong in the new covenant. They're new covenant members. Because they've been born again, because they trust in Jesus, God has given them new hearts. 
He's put his spirit within them, and they know him. They are forgiven for all their sins. They are sons and daughters of God. In baptism, they're not saying that they hope that God will do this one day in the future. They're saying that he has. He has done it. And we get to rejoice together with them in the grace of God. So I want to invite everyone to stand. I want to pray for us, and then we're going to sing, and then we're going to do baptisms. Father in heaven, we cannot help but say with the Apostle Paul, all the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Your judgments are unsearchable. Your ways are inscrutable. Who has known your mind, Father? Who's been your counselor? Who has given a gift to you that he might be repaid? We stand in awe. We stand in awe, Father. And we pray to you be all the glory. To you be all the glory for everything that you have done. And to you be all the glory in the lives of these being baptized today. Thank you for calling them from death to life. Thank you for uniting them to Jesus by your spirit and making them part of the new covenant. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.